bakers understand a lot about flour and grains, but cooks in general, there's a learning curve. I mean, there was a huge learning curve for me. So, but it took me a long time to get it in rotation in my kitchen and work with these single varietals. And you take a standard flour that you're used to using and you put 10 or 15% of rye or spelt or rouge de Bordeaux in there. It's a flavor agent, like in a huge way. And provides like a lot better nutritious value and you're working with these live flowers. So flower in general just presents a lot of challenges across the board when you're not talking about, you know, the 50 pound sack that kind of shows up at the door. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Chef Kelly Whitaker from Denver is today's guest on my podcast, Flavors Unknown. He received the Star Chef Denver Rising Star Award in 2017 and the Star Chefs Denver Mentor Award in 2022. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed American culinary leaders to talk about their path to success, their challenges, and how their background influences their creative process. You can follow us on social media at Flavors Unknown, and please subscribe to our newsletter on the website flavorsunknown.com as you do not want to miss any upcoming episode. After a degree in hospitality management from Colorado State, Chef Kelly Whitaker studied abroad in Switzerland and worked in Europe. He moved then to Los Angeles, where he worked at Michelin Star restaurants. Then Chef Kelly Whitaker moved to Boulder, Colorado. We talk about his hospitality group, EDS, and its values, the work that he's doing with local farmers on grains and his commercial milling production dry storage and one of his restaurants, and we will focus on one of his restaurants, Wolf's Taylor. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm doing great today. How's it going? It's doing very, very well. Thank you. And uh, welcome to Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Same. I've been looking forward to this. Not too long ago, I was in Denver and, and we, we met and chatted. And I have to say, I was very impressed with the, the quality of you know, the food and all the places that I've been in, in Denver. That was really a great experience. So course, like a lot of people know about like the food scene and heard about Austin and Portland and Nashville. And it seems that Denver is coming into the map, but like later than those other cities. So why is that? I mean, that's a great question. I've been here for about a decade now and I've been trying to like ask myself a couple of questions is, you know, where are we at today and where could Colorado potentially be on this map? Because it wasn't like really defined when I got here. And that's not to say that we didn't have great restaurants in 2010 and that things didn't get better as, as I spent more time here, you know. And my restaurant in 2010, we opened was in Boulder. And obviously, on a world stage, really, you know, Bobby Stuckey and for the Frosca group really was 
the sort of pinnacle and, and, and still is today. Like they're really, they set a high standard. They were, you know, people from all over the country and, and world sometimes and wine producers would fly and into Denver and drive up to Boulder. And, you know, so that was, that was definitely going on. And there were other things like, you know, I feel like we had a really strong sort of farm movement. Restaurants were using farmers and in that regards, I think it was very much there and sometimes even maybe even a little ahead of some of certain communities. So it wasn't, you know, but on the, on the, on the idea that we had that I came to Boulder, Denver, and it was just like automatically that we had these categories, right? Like barbecue or this type of Mexican food that was like regional or something. We just didn't have that culture. And I think that's what you're kind of alluding to is like, it was very different. It was, it was hard for me, you know, being that I was a line cook in Los Angeles and we had access to a lot of things coming here and opening in winter, you know, those things were obviously not there. And so, you know, but as far as the overall, you know, food scene and definition of that, I, I still think even today it's being defined. And and then you said even something else that was really interesting to me when we met, you said that the the, the food culture is more defined by who is coming from elsewhere at the moment to the area. What, what do you mean by that? There's no doubt on the on the map right now that Denver is an exciting place to live. It's always had lifestyle. I've been drawn. I grew up in Oklahoma, but I was drawn here immediately. I came here right away out of high school and started working at the resorts and started doing other things. But like, I left Colorado five, six times and always moved back for, for the same reason I think a lot of people are moving here now. You know, we have a lot of things. And so it's inviting Chefs, you know, from New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, it's a really inviting place to live. And I think everybody's recognizing that. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of talent out there that just wants to be in a community like this. And so you start to see that, that sort of leveling up as a city. And, you know, just like anything, if, if we were known for barbecue in the South, you would be kind of sort of bringing up pitmasters, right? And again, just like we talked about, we haven't had, we've had, again, I don't want to, I don't want this to be a sweeping statement and say that we haven't had, you know, gems here because some people deserve a lot of recognition for what they've been as a restaurant here, but it's very few and far between. So we're, we're not raising up that execution and food. We've always, as a group, looked for if you're coming out of culinary school in or somewhere, we, we, we like welcome that in our kitchen. And then, you know, on the other spectrum, I've always looked for outside chefs because I'm looking for, you know, someone that's been in the type of restaurant and environment, high execution, creativity, and those kinds of things. And that hasn't always, you know, there's very few kitchens in Denver that are like that. So you're getting the the majority of people sort of coming up or coming from, from away. The region is very rich when it comes to, you know, to produce and there's a lot of, you know, farms and so on. So can you talk to us a little bit about like the some of the the treasures, like local treasures, you know, that you, you have in Colorado? Yeah, I mean, uh, when people think of Colorado, they can think of Palisade peaches and cantaloupes and melons. And there's there's things that I don't think that, you know, th- those two alone, you can't really get anywhere else. In Boulder, we have a very short growing season. So a, a lot of that sort of localization, hyper local year round happens a lot on the Western Slope. So that's really beautiful place to cook. There's some great restaurants down there that are cooking locally. And so, but yeah, I mean, again, we're, we're sort of challenged right now is the best time to be, you know, a chef here because I was at 
the Boulder Farmers Market this morning and talking to our farmers. And I mean, it's just an explosion. You know, this isn't a year round Santa Monica market. There's always something in play. Right now, the markets are beautiful and they're everything's a treasure in a way. You know, the plums are incredible and the tomatoes are extraordinary i mean there there's everything is starting to happen right now but you know in a couple of months we're already thinking as chefs like what are we doing in the fall and that question has plagued me for a decade but this is this is the thing that comes up right as soon as you you peak you start to you know go down the other side of the spectrum so when you are talking about those western slopes where where is that so it's about three, four hours from here like and you can just go right up the i-70 corridor and you can get there And then if you go south from there, there's Cortez. and But I've been spending a lot of time out there, you know, not just there, but like where we grow our grains in Hooper, Colorado. It's just another type of, I mean, Colorado has just such a dynamic difference of climates over the whole state. It's really great to get out and see not just the Western Slope, but Southern Colorado towns. And I've been spending a little more time in rural areas, but we have amazing rural areas and foods that, you know, another one is right now it's like the green chilies you know everywhere you're going to see on the corner now hatch green chilies that are being you know cooked so it's it's a good time for chilies and peppers and things as well so as you just mentioned before like the you know the season you know is short and because of you know the weather being you know harsh in 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 a region and so how how do you and other chefs build like a true farm to table menu as the conditions you know make it hard to to maintain Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's difficult. You know, a lot of chefs, including ourselves and our team, you know, there's just convenience when you're a chef and you're working hard and, you know, there's the convenience factor that's there. So we tend to, when I came here, you know, and I was really, it was a really shocking moment for me. And again, I've been in Los Angeles. I started working through my distributors to bring things from the Santa Monica market. So I said, okay, I can't have this now. So what's, what's the next choice that I have? And, you know, so that pushed me to like get creative, you know, bring in things from California or Arizona with our, with our, you know, different distributors. And I still felt like I was, you know, supporting farmers and, and honestly, just friends of mine, you know, that local to me has a lot to do with relationships. So, you know, I've known Alex Weiser for years in, in LA and I love his potatoes. And, you know, I called him right away. I was like, man, you got to help me here. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what to do with my menu, but. That's one of the things you do. And then obviously, like, I think you've, you've peaked at this a little bit, but our group is super focused on grains. And that just became, you know, over, over 10 years, it became a real solution for us and other chefs, I feel like, to, you know, again, be buying, sort of supporting the local good food economy in Colorado. So I, I felt like it really started to push our innovation around grains from you know, obviously milling flowers to like fermenting grains. And that became sort of a solve for us when you talk about the word farm to table, which we don't say that a lot in our group. We're not a farm to table group necessarily. We think about a lot of things about the food supply chain in the world of food. But, you know, speaking specifically to that, I view that as like, hey, this is something that we do year round to support local farmers and to keep it on our menus and keep it keep it local, you know, in January. You were mentioning that in order to keep, uh, you know, some of those seasonal products on the on the menu was to work with farmers from other regions. But 
is it a way as well for you guys to become like more creative, like in the kitchen and play with a lot of different techniques, like obviously fermentations, but uh, mm-hmm. and others? Yeah, I think as we start to look at what it actually means to be embodied locality as a Colorado restaurant is, again, one of the questions we've been trying to answer. This obviously has a huge part to play in it. And I find that we're kind of in this era of in the middle of summer now you're finding these fresh things that are pickled. So we've been kind of having this discussion of like, yes, the acidity needs to be with this, but why is it as a function? And that's why I love about preservation techniques, but as a function, what I love is bringing some things into the story. And we call it like expanding the season. We're investing heavily in the space. We have a full-time person on staff that focuses on food waste and fermentation and preservation. And, you know, but the conversation isn't like creating the next crazy sort of, I mean, it is about creating certain types of flavors, but we, we like to expand on the seasons here. And I think it's, I think in a small way, that's, that has to be a part of restaurants that are thinking about the year long process. So it doesn't have to be, we build a fermentation lab or we hire a fermenter, but it's like, how do we take those few beautiful things like the cherries or things and just expand it out a little bit more. So obviously we cannot have you on the show and not talk about grain and milling and and flour. (laughs) You said uh, something about like that grain happens to be our medium for change. So I read that in one interview that you have done and I, and I wanted you to tell us when you, you meant by it. It's a real simple statement. I just said it one day because a lot of times I talk about, you know, my time of, again, cooking on the West Coast and how I got very involved in what was happening in the water. And I still am to this day. So I, I, I sit on the Blue Ribbon Task Force with Monterey-based seafood. And I, I tended to look for chefs that were doing big things around the water, like Michael Simaruski, you know, so being at Providence for a short time was like, incredibly impactful and so when i moved back to colorado you know i was just looking around and we have this like really beautiful farmers market and you know i started like i'm an activist probably as much as i'm a chef or anything i'm probably maybe even more of an activist sometimes i kept saying i left la and i actually even staged a day with david kinch i'm in race and i had this carrot and even after cooking in la i was like this is extraordinary like it's so good their farms are so good and i was like man this is so impactful And I talk about coming back here and like I say all the time, like if carrots could change the food system, change the soil, and they do. But, you know, I'd probably be selling and growing carrots right now. Grain is one of the things that's an unlock, we view as an unlock for farms. So when we approached our first farmer, they were growing a cover crop. Their main crop is heirloom potatoes, and it's a 600-acre organic farm. And I asked them to take out the cover crop, which is called rime and rye, which we actually actually mill as well. But we took out the rye and I sourced seeds and I brought them, you know, four or five different types of seeds and we grew that in rotation. And so we looked at it as like, not only is it great for the soil and regenerates the soil where it starts, it's also giving a farmer that might sell the cover crop for feed at a very low price, but it also like this is a big value add in terms of price for the farmer. And then the flavor, that's, you know, for me, that's again, that was in, that's where I was living in the space of because, you know, I was doing things and I I always bought and supported organic flour and I love 
a lot of mills in the United States. And, but, you know, to have something, you know, fresh milled in the back of the restaurant or, you know, in this case now at another space, it just changed our menu. And I felt like, you know, so there's change along the way, the entire way. And so when we say it's our medium for change, it's a big impact crop. You're not growing it on, you know, you can grow, we grow unique varieties on an acre, but the idea is that this is a scalable thing that can have a lot of good for planet and people and flavor. What I like in the story here that you're, you know, uh, sharing is this idea of, you know, doing good for the entire ecosystem. So, um, you know, from the farmers and as well, the restaurants and, um, you know, and guessing like the employees that are working, you know, both places. So, and the consumers, obviously, that are eating like great, tasty, you know, products. So, but you were mentioning like four, like different varieties, you know, on, on grains. So... That was interesting that I've seen as well that that you focus on single varietal, which is like really different, correct? From it is, it is we very don't different. really hear a lot about this when we talk about grain and flour. It starts with all purpose, you know, is what people understand, and and then at a, a bigger level, chefs understand pastry flour, bread flour. You know, you're kind of looking at those things, but it's not when you deduct that these are all flours and blends that are built to perf- for performance. And that's what's happened over the years in the kitchens. And not for taste. And 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 not not for taste. Yep, exactly. We wanted to look a certain way. So, you know, this is this is something that is challenging for us. It took us a long time to learn. So as we start to share this these grains and share this knowledge, you know, bakers bakers understand a lot about flour and grains, but cooks in general, you know, there's a learning curve. I mean, there was a huge learning curve for me. So I, I know there's m- much better chefs out there that probably can understand it a lot quicker than me, but it took me a long time to get it in rotation in my kitchen and work with these single varietals. And, you know, but once you understand, and even on a small level, you know, you take a standard flour that you're used to using and you put 10 or 15% of rye or spelt or rouge de Bordeaux in there, it's a flavor agent, like in a huge way. And provides like a lot better nutritious value and you're working with these live flowers. So flower in general just presents a lot of challenges across the board when you're not talking about, you know, the 50 pound sack that kind of shows up at the door. You know, you see people think about flower and when they think about baking, but I'm um, guessing, you know, restaurants use a lot of uh, flowers as well. I mean, when I was a kid, like the first, obviously, you know, from France, you can, you can tell from the accent. So, you know, I learned how to make, you know, bechamel with my mom. So obviously, when you do a bechamel, you start with a roux and, you know, you have to use flour. So, you know, I'm, I'm very curious about the impact of the quality of the flour and the different variety of the flour, like as an end result from a taste, you know, in a bechamel, for instance. So can you talk to me a little bit about this? Just because yeah, this is I mean, a sauce every- that's very interesting for me. And a lot of cooks, obviously, you know, and chefs use, you know, roux. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. Because I, I speak to this a lot. We have great bakeries here. We have three really good bakeries close to where I'm at right now. And, you know, again, everybody's head goes to like bread and, and all this. And I was like, man, I really just, I didn't even, in the beginning, I didn't want to sell to bakers. I just was like, I got to sell to chefs. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, there's so many things that grains touch in the kitchen. You know, think about bechamel, think about rude. Like that, I, I, I say this all the time in my normal, like when I'm trying to p- 
pitch a little bit. You know, it's it's that type of foundation though, and that type of technique that I think can, builds extraordinary flavor in the kitchen. That's just what I was taught. You know, on every other ingredient, I was taught that in the kitchens that I worked in, right? And you overlook something like the flour. I had I've had people come up to me and say like they were cooking for you know Thanksgiving or something and. They made the biscuits from this, but they they used their other flour for for the roux and stuff. And I was like, "Well, why?" And they're like, "Well, this is our special flour. It's meant to go here." And I'm like, "No, no, no, no! You're starting something like a gravy, and you need to start by building the flavor and the complexity of that. Just like you know, having stock and and taking time with the stock and adding you know, roasting the bones properly or to make a chicken jus or something. To me, I view it the same way." I think it's flavor building. I think it starts and I think it's fundamental to almost everything in the kitchen. And again, I can't think about, you know, pasta and think about these things without playing with the percentages of the different flowers and finding the uniqueness in them. And yes, one of my favorite things is the failure of the flower because I feel like, you know, my mom being a great example of like her cake not turning out the same or something using these flowers and that does present but it's so fun to talk about and then when she calls me a month later (laughs) and she's so excited that it worked and that she's eating this thing and she's like the flavor is insane and this is it i just like the conversation of that everyone keeps telling me that like i gotta figure it out or package it in a way away from like almost single varietal and you know we talk about stuff like that but i i like the pass and fail of really you know working with you know, these stone milled single varietal flowers and, you know, but yeah, I think it's, I think as building a base, I think it adds a depth of flavor. And I personally love to like, you know, the red versus the white wheats and things like that. I really love the seasonality of that, even though grain in Colorado harvest at the same time. But like, if I want something, you know, if I'm j- taking a bechamel for a spring lasagna, for example, I like to use Sonoran, which is Sonoran is the original grain of a flour tortilla. And I like to start the bechamel light and I like to keep if I'm doing something spring. And then if I'm going to go like bigger flavor on a bechamel, I like to use the red wheat like Rouge de Bordeaux or something else. Like that's, again, I'm kind of that can stand up to the sort of ragu or red salsa. Identifying that is just, you know, it, it just becomes a whole different conversation in the kitchen when you start to think about what type of grain flavor profile of these live flowers, you know, and, and just the, the, the array of flavor that comes out of it and being able to use that, like I said, it's an advantage in our kitchens. I felt like I didn't have to go and like stage and do all these things and keep like, I I do all those things, but this, nothing had more impact on my menu than when I started working with these flowers. Like, because you could take the simplest things and it just, it's just a different flavor. And guests are like, what is this? You know, like, how does this taste like this? How does this bread taste like this? How does this thing taste like, you know, I eat this every, you know, and I'm just like, well, this is where we start. We start with the bechamel and the bechamel impacts everything else. So how do you see the evolution of the grain market? I think what we're doing now with single varietals, we always say will probably be a lot more understood and recognized in five years. The jump during COVID where everybody was baking gave some people some insights and it, it cracked the door just a little bit to maybe move things along a little quicker. But we do see a future where 
these types of flowers become more common and understood. We also feel it as a matter of necessity. So many people are asking about their health and you know what's happening with celiac and you know the story and I know the story of everyone that eats bread in Europe but comes back and can't eat it in the US and there's a lot of truth to that and so there's a lot of health concerns that are going to push things along but you know not everyone accepts the same thing but I think you know I think it'll be a lot more understood in the future and it's not again it's not just flour it's it's a lot of things you know KitchenAid makes a milling attachment now I draw parallels all the time with coffee. You know, Folgers was pre-ground in the middle of the aisle. And right now, flour is just sitting there, losing flavor and losing everything. And it can just sit. You know, look at 20 years later where we're at with coffee and the world of coffee. And even the savvy person will still fresh grind beans in their house. And they'll be, you know, they're milling their own coffee, you know, so to speak, sure. like grinding their own grinding, coffee. Yeah. Yeah, 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 grinding their own coffee. And so... I do see a lot of parallels in that, especially since on a world basis, you know, grains make up 51% of caloric intake and that's like the world. But if you take other areas, Asia, India, ever, I mean, it's much higher. It's 80% of caloric intake. And there's a lot of, you know, again, questions and conversations happening. So I like to think like, you know, five years we're we're sort of becoming more aware, but like in 20 years, I kind of correlate with coffee in that same way that it, there was a big, there was a big shift. Yeah. It's almost full circle. I mean, I remember I was very little, but I remember spending my summer in the Northeast part of France, a little village where my dad was from. And my grandmother, in fact, had a little grinder for the wheat and she was getting the wheat and she was making her own flour. And so it's like almost, you're talking about something, you know, full circle. It's interesting. So yeah, why not having this concept so the people can select their grain and then, you know, they will mill it at home you know, yeah. based on uh, need and what they have to cook. So, okay, yeah, that so, would be fun. That's really yeah, cool. We're, no, it's cool. We're having, you know, that's that's conversations we have all the time with farmers in demand right now. And, you know, like I said, I, we tried to figure this out for ourselves and now we think it's a solve. So we're selling to some other chefs and things like that. And there's a big upstream moment where it's like, oh, get flour on the shelf. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm still thinking about like the bulk section and the peanut butter and, or the whatever you're, you know, the coffee that you're just going over and fresh grinding. So maybe uh, I'm going to wait for that moment, but we'll see what happens. I have an exciting news to share with you now. During the pandemic, I wrote a book based on the common threads and insight I had gained into how culinary leaders think. My book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, builds upon this podcast and focuses on key learnings from my discussions with 50 top culinary leaders combined with my experiences in the food industry. Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door offers an insider's look into culinary trends through the words of acclaimed and professionally recognized chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists. The book will be published on November 8th, but you can already pre-order it wherever you buy books online. Thank you in advance for your support. So let's switch a little bit and let's talk, you know, about the, uh, about the chef and, you know, when it comes to creating new recipes, what are like your sources of inspiration in general? I mean, mine definitely are impacted by travel. I'm, I, 
I've been, you know, and, and not just that. I mean, I have a passion for like, you know, I always talk about like this sort of biblical diet or whatever. That's like, I eat a lot of fish and grain and stuff. So I tended to follow that path when it came to my own food. It's what I'm really passionate about. I love vegetables and, you know, I like working that station in the kitchen too. I like, you know, making, processing those things. And, you know, I tended to follow around the story of food that I, I felt like it wasn't, I didn't know, like coming up as a cook, like I didn't know the world of food like I know it today, like Michelin and those things. I just was like, I was following ideas. So the first places that I worked in Europe, like it was around Naples and it wasn't necessarily for pizza. It was, you know, just a friend of a friend, but I I thought a lot about the slow food movement and I thought about, it, it was a lot of activism that sort of drove me from place to place. And there, you know, thinking about slow food, there wasn't even... They don't even, there wasn't an organized <laughs> chapter of sure. slow food yeah, there. Yeah. It was just watching. I always said that like the grandmothers were sort of the activists because they were just, they were just living the, against the norm of where the world was trying to go. Right. And they were just like, no, we grow in our backyard. We cook in this way. We saw, and that was like how, you know, why I went wherever I went, but the travel really informed me because I, I spent time growing up in Oklahoma on my grandparents' farms. They both farmers and I would go up there for a month or two or what have you for the summers. And so it wasn't like the farm was foreign to me, but I didn't grow up again with this cultural food background. So I, I was, was like, what it, what would my food be? You know? So I just kind of chased that all over the place, you know, and we draw a lot of inspiration from Asian communities, but it's like, my first trip into Asia was in Taiwan. It was nothing, you know, so I'm, I'm going to these more, they were just obscure and it was just based on relationship or what I was sort of, like I said, seeking out as a mentality around food. And then, I, you know, so then I, that led me a lot through China. And then, you know, as I started, I still hadn't looked at, you know, again, maybe I was like, well, I'm not going to Japan. I'm going to Western China where, I'm just like the only one out here, you know, and that was kind of, and same as Naples, you know, if I talk to my Italian community, they're like, you cooked a year and a half in Naples. How did, how are you still like walking and alive? You know, cause, <laughs> cause I didn't pay to go there on some pizza class or tour. Like I, w- I went there and I was head down working in restaurants and you know, it's the same thing. They're like, don't walk out from the kitchen because the locals won't eat here if they know that you're cooking back here, you know, because they, so if you're even from Milan, you wouldn't cook in Naples kind of sometimes. It was very, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. very, so I like, you know, found my way in these little nooks and crannies and, you know, that drove my inspiration. So when I started thinking more, more about food and, and what my food would look like, I just always wanted to be from a true place. I'm not trying to draw on fusion as much as I, I, I would just say that it's like uh, it has a lot to do with the story and like my story, and I try to just kind of put that on a plate, you know. I would say that probably the the first inspiration comes from the product that you are working with, like the ingredients, the produce, and so on. And then yeah. after that, what's what's the next step for you when you know when you create the dish? I mean, it's funny because I think about Ambasta was the first example of this discipline because I'd been working at Providence, and I came back and I was like. I want to do this very simple thing and I, I want to know as much 
what not to put on is what to put on. So it was all about knowing when to stop. And that's what it was. It was like this, it didn't need this, it didn't need this, it didn't need this. So sometimes when I think about creating a dish, I think about what it doesn't need as much as I think about the next step of what it does and build flavor in that way. But I like present, you know, like I like, I like rethinking things, you know, like one of the most probably to this day, and I still cook around with different grain risottos and stuff and just being inspired when I'm like either with Glenn Roberts or just other areas, you know, and I, I like doing alternative grain risottos and, but I, it's not the same way that you would think. And so it, it can be 15 ingredients, but I like to build the base and tradition like, Oh, you, you know, saute onion and then you do this and you, you would build it traditionally. So I, I like looking at, the technique, one of the first dishes we put on at the Wolf's Taylor was an aqua pazza cooked in Donabe. Something I did, it was inspired because I went to Ica province. I saw that. I ran into Chef Kyle from Single Thread in Northern California, and he invited me to come out before opening Wolf's because I was like, I'm going to cook with Donabe, and I don't know how to do it in a restaurant. He's like, come take a look, you know? And I mean, that inspired and informed me just being there with your team. Obviously, how could you not, you know? But the, coming back, it was like, I wanted like, I started just th- the whole time was I was thinking about Aquapazza from Naples. And I just like thought the two things oh, made a lot of sense to me, yeah. you know? So that was like one of the first dishes I built. So it was thinking about the technique of it, thinking about the base, thinking about my own story in it. Like what, what would that be like? And that's, you know, but it ultimately is just like pretty traditional Aquapazza with a few, maybe a few tea, le- tea leaves and some kombu, but <laughs> we don't, we don't talk about that, you know? Let's talk about like the Wolf Steelers. So I had the chance to to have three series of dishes there. And one that was really interesting, the first one that was the bento box concept. And when I was there, and I'm guessing it changes based on whatever is available. And but I had these three selection in the, the bento box. They were the the bison tart, the um amazake, the golden rice, like the Karanak gold rice with koji and ginger, and then the oyster. Can you talk to us a little bit about like the the inspiration behind this? Yeah, I mean, box? it's honestly, it's that was that was definitely born out of the past couple of years with COVID. We were an a la carte restaurant to begin with, and we offered a fifty five dollar tasting menu. And when we shut down, I I only had a few tables, and so and there was a change of the team that happened. It was our first change, so it's kind of a as well as a very much a rebuild. So when I came back, I had a few tables and I was just, we were navigating to go in-house, all these things. And so Bento became like something that we were doing for out-of-house experience. And so I started thinking about, you know, some of the, what we were producing in-house in terms of snacks and things like that. And so that's where the concept came through for that specifically. There was no other connection other than like, I was sourcing like to go bento boxes because I was trying to figure out how to package meals to be <laughs> so so it made its way now into this really beautiful thing where we have these great wood boxes and we you know it's it's three compartments and and I, and I'll take a step back to say you know again as my involvement right now with my chefs is just so much different when you talk about specifics of each plate chef Taylor Stark who is uh, extraordinary and if he would if he was 
you know, talking with me right now, we would talk about how these things come about because we start with these ideas. We start, you know, the food is like sometimes the very last thing we focus on. So there's a, you know, there's an idea that you would use food scrap before the meal. And really that's where the bite started. You know, obviously oyster is not like food scrap, but the idea that like in a Japanese home that you might be seeing trim and things like that, that really came into play as we started developing those bites. So what are the things around? Is it scraping the bones of the fish? Is it, you know, what what materials can we kind of go in to present this this first course? And so that's where a lot of the ideas come from. Right now, the corn tart is total utilization of corn. You know, we just wanted one bite that sort of embodied all things and of every part of the husk and the kernel and just all the things. So we just that has a lot of different layers of that. The sort of amazake beverage became a staple. We, we were just trying to make amazake from different grains and rice and all this thing. So that became something that was kind of weaving its way through our menu now as like an amuse as well. Most of this just came from the idea that we were going to serve snacks as a starter from different ideas that sort of said who we were right away and utilizes everything in the kitchen. The key element that you mentioned is like every, utilizing everything in, in the kitchen. So it's really based on the concept of like zero waste, correct? I mean, two things. We don't want to produce waste to start with. So that's become more of a focus now. And then the second is like, you know, the zero waste thing is like, we're trying to just say that each thing is just another product because it got so, I mean, as we're describing guests, like each course of like, oh, this is the waste from this, or this is the byproduct of this. And then we're just like, I was like, can we just call it another product at this point? Like, we're just constantly talking about zero waste. But, you know, so we're we're trying to, we, again, we fail at this all the time, as I would say, and as Chef would say, like, we're not, we're far from perfect on these ideas around waste, but we're, we're figuring a lot out. And a lot of interesting innovations and ideas are coming from just that idea, like I said, of saying something like zero waste. Well, it really gets all of us thinking about we're discovering like these little bites and things that are important to building our, our tasting menus. I'm looking at the time, but I want to make sure that we talk about, you know, your hospitality group as well. It's based, obviously, in the spirit of uh, collaboration. And I remember, I think that she's not working in a restaurant anymore. But when I had, uh, I think in the first year I got the podcast, I got Alison, Chef Alison, who is family as well. And at that time, she was saying that the future of the industry is collaboration. So it seems that, you know, that the hospitality group and how do you pronounce it? Because it's Latin, correct? So it's like... Yeah, it's just it, it est. Yeah. It, it est. Huh? Yes. So which means that is, correct? In, mm-hmm. If you want to translate yeah. it. And you have definitely positively impacted the Boulder, you know, community with, you know, with this, you know, hospitality group. Can you talk to us a little bit about it and the, and the values, you know, behind it? In the beginning, I just thought, like you said, it means that is, or sometimes like an example of, and so I, I really thought right away is like if we could figure out things within our group and then share the base of the knowledge with other people, it'd be, it would be something to strive for. Like, could we be an example? And that's sort of where we started. And it, it was, it's, it's manifested in many ways, not just with food, but like the mentality around restaurants is, is a big thing for us. So, and we've done this for a decade. So like, how we pay people is a big conversation now, you know, of like tip polls and tip sharing. And these were concepts that, again, that we 
we're starting with like 10 years ago. So we just built a base and I love, you know, one of my favorite things is when another restaurateur ownership crew comes to us and asks us for like, Hey, how did you treat the service bowl and navigate this or do this? And that just means like everything to me. And I care a lot about the industry and cooks and servers. And it's almost, there's a hidden sort of agenda in all the names of the restaurants. They're all, whether it's Basta or the story of the Wolf's Taylor, they all have this thing that really stands for the artisan and the cook. And so it has really, really is about people. And like you said, the collaboration has been the biggest part and the biggest function of what we do, not just in like collaborating with other chefs, but a multiple of people. And I can give you an example and it's, you know, we're talking about it now, but we, we sort of break up the Wolf's Taylor and, you know, into two seasons, warmer and colder. And we, we make kind of a bigger shift. And right now we're focused on a grain, a specific, we're, we're focused on a certain subject, you know, over the winter. And right now, just to do that, all of our teams are studying, but we're collaborating, you know, my first calls, like, you know, even the first day we opened a restaurant with Sunoko Sakai, who's a soba maker in Los Angeles. And she was like, just a big part of our story. And that's that. And, you know, we had a call this week with the team at Blue Hill. Amazing because they're just, you know, working on some similar work within grains and things. So we have a conversation with them. We're talking to Glenn Robert and Anson's like, I don't know how to move forward with anything without collaboration. So I, I totally agree in what in that statement. And that's how we're evolving. And that's who we want to be as it us. We want to be a group that can take this thing and then share it with others. But we're also very open and receptive to the other side of this, of who can help us sort of get to the next level. And I think that exchange is powerful. And I think on a very base level in our kitchens is what's happening now. Because I'm pulling back. I'm very focused on impact right now. I'm focused on a lot of things. I still work with food. I still am cooking tonight. But the but the idea of like that shift for me was really hard. And I didn't know how to have two or three small projects and manage that. And really, when I started letting everyone have a voice, a bigger voice in the kitchens and stuff, it's just been phenomenal. With Chef Michael at Bruto, who's focused on masa and it's just a different cooking style than me you know like it's a different genre of food he has a different story and now he's just taken over and it's just like his i'm like just run with that because it's incredible but i think you know that's and he's a great storyteller (laughs) and he's a great storyteller and i I think that's what i'm sort of learning right now that i'm collaborating with my chefs i'm collaborating with the community more than ever we have to collaborate at a large level to solve some of these macro issues Again, it wasn't as pressing as I think ever in history than right now of like, what are we trying to solve? How are we going to solve it? Look at the issues we're facing. COVID exposed a lot of just basic things about every single restaurant. We all learned that about the stats became really real when two out of three could fail and all of those things. So it's like, how do we as a community collaborate and come together? That's the only way I, I understand how to do it. There's not competition. I don't compete against any singular local restaurant in Denver or Boulder. I don't ever, we don't talk about it as a group. We're competing against the world, you know, in a way. And to do that, it's like a leveling up of the community that has to come through working with each other. Let's finish like the discussion with a series of rapid fire questions. So you and I are going and testing tour in Denver and, or Boulder 
And what are like the five spots that you will take me to and outside of your of your series of restaurants, obviously? One of my favorite restaurants is Hot Valley. I love it with Tommy over there. I really am proud to watch what Caroline Glover's done at Annette uh, in terms of just, you know, uh, putting a spotlight on Denver. You know, we have really great restaurants here. A lot of people would say <laughs> similar things. I was fortunate enough to be a part of like Car Driver Foundation, which is Pizza and Oyster, which yeah, is yeah. still, you know, I great think, place. Yeah, very relevant. Yeah. I got that um, can speed. No, that was really good. Yeah, yeah. And this is the worst question because you leave people out. But I think everyone will stop talking about uh, restaurants once Casa Bonita opens with Dana Rodriguez because... It's so iconic and it's being built with the founders of South Park to show. And I think they're going to just take over. Sure. <laughs> we're doing it. We're doing a project at a similar time. And I'm like, man, no one's ever going to talk about or know that we opened another project because that's just going to overshadow everything. Let's see. I'd say, you know, I really like as another, I, I'm stuck on pizza right now, but I like white pie. I like what those guys are doing and it, they're doing a couple locations, but it's New Haven and I like taking the family there. But there's so many. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? You know, it used to be frozen pizza. I would answer that question with guilt. You know, like I would work at Boston. I'd go home and, and I know it's so bad. I don't anymore. But that was like, in the beginning, I'd forget to eat. And then I'd come home and I'd be like, oh, frozen pizza sounds good. But, you know, I'm still a pizza fan, but probably on the higher level spectrum. But I would say what I eat is probably not guilty at all. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? Bastianich. I like some of the stuff there. The I like recently Sonoko's book on Japanese home cooking. I think there's some soulfulness there. I'm trying to think of, yeah. You know, I know this is like kind of out there in terms of volume, but and being on the newer side of things, but I really like a lot of the work that the modernist cuisine guys have done. It's really shaped a lot. I mean, I I don't read through every page and every volume, but like when they came out with sort of times and temps for certain things that I was always trying to figure out and they figured it out for me, I was like, oh, from an execution standpoint, this is phenomenal. Did you get the new part with the pizza? I did. The... I did. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. What's your biggest pet peeves in the kitchen? I mean, it's still going to be like leaving things behind, I should say, like I'm a big organizer, you know, so like if I've been out of Boston kitchen, for example, for, you know, some time and I come back or I'm filling in, I, there's a lot of me just getting my situation right, just to be able to sort of walk into there. So that's like, probably my pet peeve is just like, <laughs> I, I, everything I have to, there's, I'm neurotically like it, the cleanliness and organization to be able to do something is it's probably that. So when someone leaves something out and just moves on to the next task, I'm pretty annoyed with it. And tapping pans, of course, tapping pans with spoons. You know, that's always annoying. Okay, chef, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I was really excited to have you to have you on the show. No, I, it's a pleasure in like talking about the grains and talking about the movement. I I appreciate you giving me the platform to speak on some of the stuff. So thank you. Thank you for listening today. The world needs more people like Chef Kelly Whitaker, who is trying to change the world's food systems one grain at a time. I bet after listening to this episode, we will not be able to grab a bag of flour the same way. By the way, you can order the single varietal flours that 
Chef Kelly Whitaker mentioned in this episode on the website drystoragecoe.com. Again, it is drystoragecoe.com. Please share this episode with anyone passionate about food and baking. It is easy. You can do it directly from your phone. Make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, on social media, at Flavors Unknown, and please subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com. Next week, we will stay in Denver as my guest will be Chef Michael Diaz de Leon. He's the chef at Brodo that is part of the restaurant group from Chef Kelly Whitaker. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.